0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Ann Rudzinski, and this is Prevent, Resist, Support, a podcast by the Sexual Misconduct Response and Prevention Office at the University of Windsor.
1: I've got your back, my dear. Keep your hand out when your breath is feeling short prevent resist
0: support all right folks i've got an exciting episode for you today Today, I get to chat with Dr. Charlene Sen, who is a professor here at the University of Windsor and is also the Canadian Institute of Health Research, Canada Research Chair in Sexual Violence. It is so cool to have Charlene on our campus. Charlene is also a professor in the psychology department and affiliated with applied social psychology. She's also cross-appointed to women and gender studies, and she teaches courses on male violence against women and girls, feminist psychology, and the psychology of women. Charlene describes herself as a feminist social psychologist, and her research focuses on male violence against women, particularly sexual violence. She's also researched the impact of mainstream pornography on women's lives. And related to what we're going to talk about today, she's also done a bunch of research and created programming, namely the Flip the Script program, which is also known as EAAA, Enhanced Assess, Acknowledge, and Act. And she's also researched the Bystander Initiative and that programming on our campus. So. Today we're gonna talk with Charlene about the importance of evidence and research in preventing sexual violence on university campuses. So just quickly before we get into our interview today with Charlene, I'd like to go over our support resources. So if you need support and you're a member of the U Windsor campus community, you can talk to Dusty. Right now, the best way to get in touch with us is by email at svsupport at uwindsor.ca, but we also have a comprehensive resource list on our website for both on-campus and off-campus resources in Windsor, Ontario, and that is uwindsor.ca slash sexual-assault. If you're not in Windsor, check out the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers. Their website is sexualassaultsupport.ca. Welcome, Charlene. So excited to have you on our podcast today.
1: I'm very glad to be here.
0: So we're going to chat a little bit about uh, the research that you've been doing and about research and evidence as it relates to campus-based sexual violence prevention. Let's start with why did you decide to have a career in sexual violence research?
1: I think first, like many people, I didn't actually decide this in a formal way early on. It's more like you end up there. And so for me, it was, you know, I did my bachelor's of science degree in psychology and there was nothing on women in it. I took the very first women's studies courses and they fueled my activism. And so I was an activist off campus um, working in pr- primarily in anti-pornography activism. So at that time, um, working against violence and degradation in images, um, particularly sexually explicit images and also in women's health activism. So it, I was a founding member of a women's health collective looking at you know, sort of getting more knowledge to women about their bodies and about their sexuality and so on. Um, and then I got a job in um, frontline in a women's shelter. And it was at that time that I sort of found this gap in what we knew. Um, and so I, I was hearing lots of stories from w- for women and my own experiences as well told me that um, they were having a lot of experiences of sexual violence that included pornography, being forced to watch pornography, um, being forced to enact pornography um, and, when I went, you know, to the library, like anybody who had been a student, there really wasn't anything there. So I thought I need to do some of this research. And so I did that research on women's experiences with pornography um, and the impact of pornography on women for my master's and my PhD. But then I thought, you know, it's really important to study, um, you know, men's perpetration. And so I did that for a while and, uh, and then, I sort of realized that I'd gone from a general focus on Um, violence against women and girls to a much more specific focus on sexual violence. And so then a decade after I had already got my first academic job, that's when I first started to realize really what I want to do is to go further and try and make real change, like actually try and build the educational interventions rather than just studying this anymore.
0: And that is such a great segue um, into the piece, which is that you created the EAAA program, which is sometimes called the Enhanced Assess, Acknowledge, Act program, or sometimes called the Flip the Script program. And I think the newest language is the Flip the Script program with EAAA.
1: Or Flip the Script with EAAA, because it describes both uh, the original name, the Enhanced Assess Acknowledge Act, um, part of the program and the fun flip the script part. Uh, Yeah.
0: Amazing, so can you tell me a little bit about what made you want to create that program?
1: Well, at that point where I, I said I was at that turning point, um, I reviewed all of the education programs that had been developed and evaluated, went back to the literature, spent, I spent, you know, four months just reading, looking at all of that research and was quite horrified, but not maybe not completely surprised that really like none of them had positive impact on sexual violence perpetration, not a single one, um, or on victimization, that there were lots of good ideas that had been implemented, and then, but then when they were evaluated, they had no effects, um, or they had effects on attitudes, but not on behavior, or and, and or if they had positive effects on attitudes, those only lasted sometimes two months, sometimes two weeks, sometimes maximum like four months. And so very short lived changes and not to in the, all the ways that matter. And so I could see that there were researchers who were working um, really hard on trying to find ways to reduce um, men's perpetration, p- particularly. Um, to try and develop something that would work. Uh, And that was not my expertise. All of most of my work had focused on women and girls. But in the meantime, girls were being, and women were being sexually assaulted. And my read of what we knew was that both in terms of feminist activism and all of the work that had been done by feminists for many years in the community, but also the research suggests that we could actually build on what we know now and on some of the new theories that had had recently come out at that time um, to actually help put women in a situation where if they are um, in contact with a man who tries to sexually coerce or assault them, they actually have strategies or um, knowledge that could help them in those situations and, and help undermine that perpetrator's advantages. And so that was my goal to build on work, making something that, um, based on that long history of the work of others, um, both in the community and in academic settings. um, And uh, so started that work to develop the program.
0: And this program, I don't know, Um, If all of our viewers are at University of Windsor, but we've been running this program for a few years now at the university, it's so amazing. It's super empowering for women. It's an incredible experience to run the program as a facilitator, which I've done a few times. Uh, And I think one of the things that's so interesting about it is just the immense amount of work that went into creating it. So it wasn't something that you wrote um, in a couple of weeks. It was something that you spent quite a lot of time and, and years even. Developing and testing to make sure that it worked. So, can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that research behind the programming itself?
1: Yeah, yeah. Certainly, it has it has been a long road <laughs> to do that. Um, and I even started. I won't talk about this in any detail, but I even started with some um, studies looking at how um, sort of what kinds of messages about. Uh, this kind of programming would actually be appealing to young women to ensure that we would be able to get them into the research studies. So I even started, I did basically two years of research that wasn't even, I didn't have a program yet, but I wanted to know, for example, um, whether sexuality kinds of topics or the sexual assault resistance kind of topics were what was attracting women and how long it could be without being onerous and those kind of things. So, so what I, um, started with, of course, was the research. (laughs) Um, And uh, I I started that, um, basically spent probably six months full time um, working on finding out all, pulling together all the knowledge that we had and looking at the very best theories of what the obstacles are for women when they are faced by sexual violence that is coming from men they know. Because this is the, you know, the fundamental problem that um, we need to solve in this kind of program is that girls are taught to from the time they're very small, that sexual assault is something that comes from strangers. And so it's very shocking um, to experience this from someone you know and perhaps like or even love. So looking at that research, I found that there were Patricia Rose and Mary Koss had mapped out an idea that they called Assess, Acknowledge, Act. And they were pulling together this these theories and the best empirical research and evidence of the time. Um, but they had described it basically in several paragraphs in a journal article. Um, so it wasn't a program, it was an idea, a synthesis of research, an idea for a program. And so I contacted them and found out. Um, that no one had put it into practice yet, and got permission from them to use their idea, which is why that big long name was the first name of the program. I wanted to give them credit for their great idea. And then Um, I had to sort of map out the program with every element aligning with the theory, which is called the cognitive ecological model, and the research evidence, so you have to sort of like do a great big roadmap of all the things that would need to be in place, everything that would need to be taught, or every kind of activity that would need to be done to actually provide the knowledge or the skills. Um, that are needed. And so you're mapping it out and synthesizing everything we know. So that's um, a big first step. And then I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So, right, we don't, if we, there's something that's great that already exists, don't, make your own. Um, So uh, finding out where there were other programs that perhaps they didn't work as a whole, but they had a really good activity that actually fit into this model. Um, And so I thought, you know, would potentially work when it was all put together in a different way. Um, So then, you know, got permission where possible, or i definitely cite their work. And then I wrote any components that were missing. And of course, part uh, part of what you're doing there is also trying to make the activities fun right this is a very serious topic but you're not going to want to sit there and just be talked at so it's to, how to make this really interactive and how to pull from the participants who are, are all uh, young women with experience in the world how to pull from them that they already know a lot of these things that we know in the research literature and to support them to see that they have this knowledge and this and this ability within them um, already and then to develop them. And so, um, did that, and then you've got the program. You got the draft of the program, and uh, we. So the first thing we did with my with my graduate students Stephanie G. and Kristen Saunders, we offered the program to a few groups of young women. So just our draft, they ran through it, and then and the um, the young women who were participants, you know, they filled in your normal kinds of evaluations. But that's, we didn't use that as a major source. We also also did focus groups with them, and we got their feedback on every unit, and, and this time it was the three units, the Assess Acknowledge Act. Um, and it turned out that they thought that one of the units was entirely redundant with the, they thought the second unit was like the same stuff as what was in the first unit. And it was like, it's not at all the same stuff. Why does, why does it feel that way? Right? I mean, on paper, it's definitely not. And so we had to think about what they were saying and then we reorganized, re-reworked everything. We basically rewrote that entire, um, second session. Um, And then we had to run another study. Um, And so we did one to test the preliminary effectiveness of that three-unit program and with pre and post um, surveys. And then found that um, actually in that one, we did do some random um, assignment. um, And we found that the effects didn't last. So they were great. We were getting good effects for about three months. And then they dropped off. And so realize that actually we need, you know, we need more practice here. It's one thing to learn something; it's another thing to be able to apply it. And so we added 30 minutes to every unit, and no more content or anything like that. Just more time to apply it to scenarios, to practice with material. And then I added in the sexual, the relationships and sexuality unit, which is my you know my original contribution to the idea which is that we shouldn't be talking about sexual assault resistance before we've talked about what we actually want in sex and uh, but most of us don't have sex education at all or good sex education for sure. We definitely don't talk about women's desire. And so um, I based a unit, again, not reinventing the wheel on our whole live sexuality program and added that in and put it first because, of course, sex education should come first before you start talking about sexual assault. Uh, And then did another study um, with about 240 young women where we randomly assigned them to get no program or to get one version, either the three-unit or the enhanced with sexuality four-unit four program, and then followed them up for um, three and six months. And uh, it was very interesting. Again, what we had to do, we, I interviewed every woman, or I didn't personally, my um, research assistants did, we interviewed every woman who dropped out of the program. So this is always very important for program development, right? What went wrong if something went wrong? Now, maybe they just dropped out because they decided they needed to study more for a course, but let's find out, you know, is there something wrong? Is it not working for some women? Um, we also interviewed 20% randomly chosen of the women who completed the whole program to find out their feedback and not in this time, not just in a group setting where people might feel um, compelled to agree with other people but could really tell um, an interviewer what they thought, so we did that as well. and. Um, Then we really, that's where we really realized that my great idea, which theoretically makes sense of putting sexuality education first, um, actually for the least sexually experienced young women or um, women who had been socialized or whose families were religiously conservative or politically conservative and didn't think you should be talking about sexually explicit things in you know, in a public set, um, felt very uncomfortable with the sexuality unit being first. Um, they didn't know the facilitators, they didn't know the other women. And so we had about a 20% dropout of women from the program after that first session in the enhanced program. And so those interviews with those young women taught us that and made me realize like this is the perfect example where theory or the, and the logic would tell you it has to come first, but actually it can't come first. It has to come after there is comfort and comfort. Um, so now so then in the next version i put the sexuality unit last and it now ends up being women's favorite unit even the most conservative and least sexually experienced women um, enjoy that unit because they have the trust of having been with the other women for those nine hours before they got there um, and the facilitators for all that time and so that was um, sort of how we did it and then i did the full randomized control trial with over 900 young women where they're randomly assigned to either get the program uh, or not. And at three different universities, so so not just Windsor, to make sure this is you know goes beyond that any effects we get. And that's where we were able to show that dramatic 50% reduction in uh, completed and attempted rape and um, large reductions also in other forms of sexual violence. And then I think the last thing would be that the work on the program never ends. So every year it has to be updated with the latest research, right? You have to review that and figure out, does it change anything? Does the new knowledge change anything about the way the program is offered? Um, and to give one example, this year did a, ma- a sort of a much more major um, revision because the um, there's more new research on the experiences of Black women students in North America um, and their experiences of sexual violence and so uh, being able to think about that new research and think about are there ways in which we need to alter small in in smaller larger ways some aspects of the program so that this represents every um, young woman's experience um, and so made those bigger revisions and of course along the way also made sure that it works for lesbians and bisexual women and asexual women and uh, women of various religions as well, including Muslim women. Did a revision at one um, early on before the trial.
0: I just think that's so amazing. And so I think one of the really cool things is that when you bring Flip the Script onto your campus, you're not just getting a 12 hour workshop, you're getting all this research and all this thought and this really carefully and thoughtfully scaffolded program with, um, you know, all these pieces that have been so carefully examined and, and thought about. And, um, and I think that's really incredible. And I love that you said, don't reinvent the wheel, because I think a lot of folks think that it's easy to write a program. Um, but I think the amount of money you would spend trying to create your own program would be, you know, quite a bit compared to just bringing in something that is already so carefully tested. So I always like to think about that piece, just the, the sheer amount of work that went into it.
1: And how often our ideas about what we need to put in it are shown to be wrong. (laughs) Right. Just like in in my early versions. Right. I mean, it made perfect sense to me. And uh, and then we find out that, you know, it's not viewed that way from the participant point of view and you have to change it.
0: Yes. Amazing. And so one of the things that I would really like to talk about is there's this tension around research and evidence-based programming um, and the the ways that it's implemented on campus. So there seem to be kind of two, two schools of thought here. One where we prioritize programs that have been backed by research evidence, meaning that we have some data that shows that there's efficacy in the program. And then there's another school of thought that says we really need to have fluidity and to be able to adapt these programs based on current topics, campus climate, things that are coming up um, you know, from students. And and so um, I think you've touched on the fact that, you know, there is a way to, to shift things and change them as needed in a research and evidence-based way. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? And can you tell us about why it is so important that we use research and evidence-based programming on campus?
1: Yeah. I mean, the evidence-based programming is and sometimes people think that it has no flexibility, and as as you um, or or that it's, you know, it came from one place, so it can't possibly be good on another campus. But almost, you know, sort of almost all evidence-based programming and certainly um, the, this, um, you know, flip the script with EAAA, is it has to be modified on every campus that it's on in minor ways um, so that it feels relevant to participants. So things like you bring the statistics into the, into the program that are based on that community or that um, province or country, right? You'd never present um, American stats to Canadian students, right? That would not feel like it's relevant. It would feel like a whole bunch of our textbooks that we read. Um, and so, you know, and the street names of in the scenarios have to fit. And so there's those kinds of things that are being, um, that are, that I consider they their minor um, modifications that are, or adaptations to evidence-based programming so what sometimes is being talked about as adaptation uh, the kind of adaptations that are wanted is to be able to just like take chunks of uh, a evidence-based program and Eliminate them or add things in or, you know, all of those kinds of things. And the problem with that, of course, if you remove contents or activities or you add other ones in, then there's no, we don't, we don't know at all that the program, even an evidence based one would still be effective without evaluating that change. But in terms of the kinds of programming which is evolving and that therefore is dealing with um, issues as they're arising from students. So students say that they would like to learn more about this particular topic. That's really great for getting interest and awareness up, right? That's that is doing education. It's really important. But it almost, it's almost it's virtually impossible for it actually to be prevention. People would be surprised to know that the theory and evidence that underlies an effective program actually has not been changed. There's no difference in the findings 30 years later. Um, so we often presume like new things come, there's a new issue, there's a new, and it's going to radically change what we should be doing for sexual violence prevention. But often the changes are very surface. They're not actually the deeper things that get in the way, for example, of us seeing sexual violence when it when it's present or helping us to overcome emotional obstacles to the fact that we liked that person and now they're betraying our trust, right? Those kinds of things. Um, and so those things are actually fairly stable. We just, we have not, we sometimes get new research that nuances something, um, but there isn't that kind of fluctuation in, in the causes of sexual violence or in what we need to do to overcome it or to change attitudes or behaviors. Um, and so I think there's, uh, we risk Always, a bit that basically we're doing awareness um, building, and that is a good thing. But that is not prevention. And if we think we're doing prevention when we're doing those things, then we're not doing something that could actually make a difference. So that is part of the problem. Also, is that where we're making one choice, we're often, you know, um, turning our back on something else, and that's a problem. If what we're turning our back on is what we know actually works.
0: Yeah. And then I think one of the things is that you're also doing some large-scale adaptations on the program around content for younger girls. We always get that comment in our work, you know, why don't you do this in high schools? And um, that is something you're working on. And you're also looking at adaptations for transgender folks and to bring the programming online. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about that work that you're doing?
1: Yeah. So so my confession to the people who are listening is that you know I've always known based on our you know all of the research and own experience that 50% of all the rapes that women experience happen by the time we're 18. Right, we cannot ignore that adolescent period because it is extremely high risk, right? 14 to 24, but with with, um, a lot of of the sexual violence occurring to us in our teens. But I knew that all of this work of developing and researching the program to prove its effectiveness was going to be easier for me if young women could consent for themselves. And so I purposely made the decision to choose, um, to do the research first in the youngest women in university who are at highest risk in university, um, but and to wait until later to do the research with girls where we need parental consent and girls, girls consent also. Um, and so that was a deliberate strategy for that first decade of, of of research. And I did from the beginning, um, I did a couple of small studies where um, I tried the program out with, with um, younger girls, but 16 and, and older, um, and got great um, responses, but also showed me that it was like all of these things not going these adaptations you can't just go oh well we'll just change a few scenarios and this will be right we'll just make them not bars because a 14 year old can't go into bar without false ID so let's um just change that well we need to really look at developmental stage so all of these studies are uh, for adaptations are like minimum five-year studies of of work and development so yes we're um, we've currently done um, two years of studies with girls 14 to 18 and uh, looking at their experiences um and uh, their social and dating relationships. And uh, we now have an adapted version of the program and we are just waiting for COVID to be over so that we can do the full randomized control trial with girls um, in Ontario and to test um, I sort of how, how the effects um, work with um, the younger girls. Uh, and, uh, Trans women have always been included in the university um, uh, program, but there was not a research base to make any of the content specific to trans women at that time in terms of trans women students. So yes, with another colleague, Sarah Peitzmeyer at the University of Michigan, um, we've been doing research over the last year or two um, to try and create that research base uh, for the experiences of trans students or students under the, uh, the broad trans umbrella and to figure out if it was a good idea to adapt um, Flip the Script with AAA for um, those students or not. And um, we're at the point where I think it's pretty clear, yes, we could adapt the program, but it will have to be um, different in some, in some key ways, um, particularly because there will be a mixture of trans students in the, in the room. And so we need to make sure it can work um, across um, for everyone, basically, based on the knowledge that we have so far. Uh, and the online EAAA is, is a very complicated thing that we started, adaptation we started before COVID. We are still not sure that it will work because the safety and privacy and the, um, the wonderfulness of the, of the in-person small group experience of, of talking about these things together. Um, we are not sure how all of this will translate. Um, in this online environment where you might not be free to talk in your home environment, right? Or to explore the same ideas and will it feel as as, um, comforting? So we're also doing that work. And again, that's um, with Sarah um, Peitzmeyer from the University of Michigan. And I should have said that the girls study is is being done. My, uh, the co-principal investigator on that is Sarah Cran, who's been leading that work.
0: I've met Sarah a few times and she is awesome. So I'm glad we've got that shout out in there to Sarah. Um, One of the things that I would love to talk a little bit about is the idea that um, lots of folks have opinions about how we should prevent sexual violence on campus or how we should teach about sexual violence on campus. Um, and I feel like you probably have some wonderful insights on that piece of things. Uh, what would you like to tell us about the opinions that folks have about how to tackle this program on campuses?
1: So I probably have a few ideas. <laughs> One of the things that I've seen is that, you know, homegrown programs, the programs that we sort of think we put together um, just, uh, you know, within a, a a short while and and try and offer on our campuses. Um, they're based on people's ideas, usually that have not been tested. Um, and sometimes people's ideas of what cause what the causes of sexual violence are are wrong. Um, so for example, uh, people have believed um, that, you know, really sexual assault particularly acquaintance sexual assault is caused by miscommunications and if we could just and so this is not me saying this this is somebody saying this if we could just get women to be more clear about what they want and we could right and then we could just um you know tell Um, men on campus that they need to, to listen to what women are saying. They just need to listen more. And if we can solve that miscommunication problem, then we've solved sexual, acquaintance sexual violence among, particularly among heterosexual students. And You know, the research on that is very is quite complicated in some ways and not in others. And it basically suggests this is not the cause of acquaintance sexual violence, that men not understanding that women are saying no is not the problem because they do and they ignore it. Um, Men who are perpetrating, they are. Purposely ignoring the no or any of the other cues, and that in fact, men are perfectly capable of um, just like women are, um, and everyone of every gender of actually recognizing quite subtle nonverbal cues as well as verbal cues as not interested, no way, never or not now, um, all of those things are, are recognized. So if you started with that idea, which you know, a lot of people would support, oh yeah, it's just about miscommunication, really that's the problem, then all of your efforts are wrong. And you could do a whole lot of things all day long that, every, that people would probably enjoy, because it sort of fits stereotypes of, um, and you might have a lot of fun doing it, but you actually are reinforcing Uh, a really misguided view that actually harms survivors and potentially lets um, perpetrators off the hook. Um, and, And right, you could make the whole situation way worse. So that's an idea of what you know where the cause um, is wrong. Sometimes it's about you know what would actually work to change people's behavior. And so you know you hear, hear the kind of thing. Well, we just tell people um, w- that they shouldn't perpetrate, right? They should ju- they just shouldn't do it. Well, we know that that if if that was going to work, it would have you know would have happened a long time ago. It doesn't work. Um, And even when our ideas are really good ones, they don't always work the way that we think they will. And in fact, Um, there's a history of evaluations that shows that sometimes our really, really good ideas actually create backlash effects and can make the problem worse or have no effect. And if we've only got limited time and resources, right, we need to actually do the things that we know work. Or if we've got a brand new idea, we need to do a little study. And that doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be a full-blown, you know, it doesn't have to be a million-dollar randomized control trial like some of the stuff I do. It can be, smaller than that to just see if we're actually doing what we think we're doing with it and it can't be based just on whether people are having fun or satisfied with what they heard or think they learned something we have to actually study what they learned Um, so that's you know in terms of those um, about just opinions about what might work we need to be based more we know a lot more than people think we know and so finding that out is always a good idea
0: I think that's so important because I think there's just it's a much more complicated problem sometimes than people think it is. It is, and it's uh, yeah, it's one that folks have been trying to tackle for quite a long time, yeah. and there's you know a wealth of research yeah. out there.
1: I guess the other thing I'd just say is that whenever we think that there's one solution. We can just be sure that we are wrong because there is no one solution. First of all, we know that target the, the best prevention is targeted prevention. That means we need to do a lot of different things and we need a comprehensive plan. Um, so, you know, so I'm saying, you know, this program that I developed really works for women across sexual identities and across backgrounds and demographics and all of it, but it, it's only one piece. of of the solution, right? It's not the whole, and we need to also be doing those other evidence-based things like bystander programs, which don't change victimization and perpetration in the short run at all. But what they change is bystander attitudes and by willingness to intervene and bystander behaviors, which change the culture on a longer, um, uh, timeline, and therefore are going to contribute to, the, to ending the problem of sexual violence in the long run as well. And for example, so that's just two. And consent education, again, the lack of knowledge about the consent laws is not what causes sexual violence, and we know that it makes no difference, but talking about consent is great sex education. So it's not sexual violence prevention, but it it, it raises awareness and it gives us g- good tools to talk about sexuality, which is really, really important. So that's part of it too. But no one thing will can work alone. Although
0: I will say I miss the one thing that is flipped the script so much this year. And I can't wait until we get back to it. <laughs> We're really feeling the you know, the, the feels about not having that running this year because of COVID. So hopefully we get back to flip the script soon. Um, One of the things that I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on is the idea of the death of expertise. I read a couple (laughs) articles about the death of expertise and it feels like because sexual violence is a social issue, Um, and you know, it's one that lots of people know about and has been really discussed quite a bit in the media over the last few years, it feels a bit like expertise and data are regarded with less importance than they used to be. And that folks have their own opinions about sexual violence. And there is almost this like church of opinion around, well, you know, we have to respect everyone's opinions, but there are facts and there are, there are data and there is research. Um, and so are you feeling that in your work and, um, do you have any thoughts about it?
1: Because I don't do social media at all um, as, a, as a purposeful decision, I'm not as exposed to all of the things that you're talking about, but obviously I'm also absorb um, them in, in um, other kinds of media that I do read and do engage in. Um, and I do see this idea that, that every opinion is equal or that it has the same value. Um, as being a problem, which does not mean that every person who has a, an idea does not have the same value that, you know, every person has, has value. Um, but so for me, what's important is that we both um, broaden and narrow this idea that we have about who has expertise. So on the one hand, I'm saying we need to broaden expertise because I'm sure there are many people listening who um, sort of have this idea that only people with PhDs can have the the good ideas about prevention. Um, that's just bogus, right? Like that's not that's not true. <laughs> um, and there's lots of people with PhDs who um, whose opinions on a topic like this would are are totally um, uh, baseless. Like they're they have no value. So I think we need to broaden what we think of expertise in the one, and then we need to narrow it. As well, so this is about the like sort of the death of expertise. That is a bad idea, <laughs> right? Bad idea to get rid of expertise. So, for example, what I'm talking about is, uh, you know, working in any field gives us knowledge and experience. Um, experiencing something ourselves gives us knowledge. Uh, someone who has degrees has some particular knowledge and experiences, uh, but having knowledge or experience in one area doesn't necessarily give us expertise in another. And so, for example, my experiences as a survivor of sexual and physical violence gives me an insider view of those issues. And so I I've been able to use those long before I had any degrees, right? To call bullshit on some <laughs> views of victims or survivors or on the issue of sexual violence. Right. So that's it, it is a type of expertise um, that comes from personal experience. Um, but it didn't give me the expertise in what works in prevention. And my frontline experience working with other women in in an assaulted women's shelter um, gave me more knowledge and experience than my own experiences, right? It broadened my knowledge and experience and showed me that not all survivors have the same views or experience, right? Um, And it developed my own expertise further um, so that my opinions were more informed than my own experience alone, for example. And of course, we're all reading and talking to other people um, and attending workshops, and that's giving us more knowledge and experience. But I still didn't have the, experience, the expertise to, of what works in prevention until I knew that research inside out right, until I could really evaluate the kinds of claims that were being made about what would work and what wouldn't. And that didn't come with the degree, which is actually probably unnecessary, (laughs) Um, right? It came with a particular kind of training, certainly uh, about how to read a research article, um, but that you don't need a PhD to do that. And it came with a particular kind of experience and application of work and so on. And that's where that particular expertise came. And it doesn't mean that someone else couldn't arrive at it from a different place. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that we have to acknowledge that expertise can come from lots of different kinds of experience, but that we only really have expertise on prevention work if we actually understand the aspect the important aspects of prevention, which is not the same as knowing anything about sexual violence or about social change or um, about something sexuality or something else.
0: That was such a beautiful and thoughtful answer. So thank you so much for laying that out. I think that touched on like all of the things that I wanted to ask you as follow-ups uh, to that piece. And, and I think that's just, you know, so wonderful to kind of think about expertise in in, a way that is more broad than just academia, but to also think about where does the expertise come from and, and how are we growing our knowledge in an area and that, um, you know, that that work can, can come from different different perspectives or different roles. Um, so that is so wonderful. Um, I have one last question for you, which is just, what is one takeaway that you'd like to leave us with?
1: Hmm. I think I actually had a lot of uh, trouble. I think you told me you were going to ask me this question and I had trouble coming up with an answer. Um, But I think it would be that easy is almost never the answer. (laughs) The the thing that it's like really easy to do is is almost never that answer. And that we need to invest like real time and considerable resources to do this work the way that it really needs to be done. But we can do that while we're all engaged in it and we're having fun as part, right? That is also part of this work. Um, And that we can disagree with each other and have those really engaged conversations that are informed and help move us all forward.
0: I love that. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today chatting about this. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm so excited for folks to listen to this episode. So thank you so much, Charlene.
1: Thank you very much. It was was a lot of fun.
0: So that was our chat with Charlene. I always love talking with her and you know, I think it's so incredible to have Charlene on our campus. It's so cool that Flip the Script was developed here. It's just a really excellent program and I'm so grateful every time I get the chance to talk to Charlene about it. Just to run through our support resources, again, for all of you, um, if you're in Windsor and you're part of our U Windsor campus community, you can reach out to our office at svsupport at uwindsor.ca, and if you're not in Windsor, you can check out the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers at sexualassaultsupport.ca. Remember to like and subscribe, that always really helps us out, and thank you so much for listening today.